we do have a lot to celebrate. For the past year and five weeks, we have been walking verse by verse through the book of Revelation in our series called Victory Unveiled. And today is our last message in this series. We made it. Or at least I think we did, because... We're not quite there yet. we got to get through it. But, um, it, it, you know, part of the reason that why we started this series was because of the massive amount of wild ideas that are floating around about this book. So it felt appropriate to actually walk through this letter to see what it actually says. And so what we've discovered is that this book has a reputation for being so intimidating and that it is actually extremely encouraging and filled with hope. And not just hope for people in a distant future or a distant past, but for us today. We live in the most informed time in history. Now, we live in the most informed. You you can pull out your phone and get pretty much any question answered. The question is whether or not that answer is going to be true or not. Right? It's highly informed. But we also live in the most confused time in history. Because much of that is because, like, the litany of competing narratives that are floating around society right now is insane. Right? Everyone has a particular lens through which they see the world. It's called their worldview, right? And it's been based on these underlying assumptions that people make about what's true and what is not true, and or even what truth is. Right? So when the world is centered around subjectivity, or the idea that truth is whatever you want it to be, it creates a narrative of utter chaos and confusion. And it's completely void of meaning. And so you get different narratives that are basically like whichever one feels good to you at the time or jives with your particular tribe. So you just turn on the news, you flip through the channels, and you're going to get a dose of competing narratives that all seem to be standing on shifting sands. Right? But as we've walked through the book of Revelation, we've been presented with a different kind of narrative. In fact, the very basis of Revelation is presented to us as an eyewitness account of truth. It's a prophetic testimony of what the Apostle John witnessed himself. It's an eyewitness account. That's what we're getting, right? What he witnesses to and what he testifies about is the gospel narrative the true narrative on display before him. We've seen the redemptive story of all creation on display through these spectacular images, symbolic numbers. God's painting the true narrative of all creation upon the canvas of each page. That's the book of Revelation. Right? Each vision appeals to the eyes of our imagination so that we can grasp spiritual truths that are otherwise too lofty and transcendent to comprehend. But when we view these visions through the eyes of the first century church that it was originally written to, then we're given a lens that enables us to see not only how applicable and relevant this revelation was to them, but also to us now, today. So the Spirit of God pulls back the physical veil and presents us with the true storyline that undergirds all of creation. And it's a narrative that's been corroborated by thousands of years of history and eyewitness testimony. Not only, bef- not only after and since this letter was written, but even before, where you've got the entire Bible that's being corroborated in this letter. It's the firm foundation of eternal truth, and it finds its source and substance in the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God in the flesh. It's withstood the test of time. It's the lens through which all other counterfeit narratives are exposed and expelled. That's what we've been diving into. Like, this is the power of the book of Revelation. This is the power of the word of God. The truth is that Revelation is like the epilogue to the entire Bible. Nothing is left open-ended, right? Like all the promises, all the hopes and dreams of creation find their closure and fulfillment in the return of Christ and the new creation. That's what we've been looking at. That's why this letter is so saturated with Old Testament biblical imagery. It's presenting the fulfillment of every plot line and promise throughout history. And nothing is left undone or unfinished or open-ended. Nothing. 
The reason this series has felt so rich and deep is because this letter calls upon the eternal truths of all creation. Revelation gives us the lens to see the world that we live in as it actually is. This is the true narrative. This is the gospel narrative. This is victory unveiled. And this morning, we've come to the final passage in Revelation, which is the epilogue, right? And so in some ways, we've come to the epilogue of the epilogue of the entire Bible. So what then is the concluding thought of the entire Bible? Like, what's the main idea of the epilogue of the epilogue of all creation? When you put on the gospel glasses and you see things as they truly are, the cry of our hearts becomes one deep longing, one all-sufficient hope that's expressed in one single prayer. And that prayer is, come Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the, this is the title of our final sermon in Revelation this morning. Come, Lord Jesus. Say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> I did. Come, Lord Jesus. Say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. You can say that like, come, Lord Jesus, or you can say it like, come, Like you can say, come, like you can fix your eyes on him, behold his glory, and say, I want you with me here now in this place, saturated with grace. It's not necessarily a despairing thought. That's a twisting of what come, Lord Jesus is. You can despair of this world, absolutely. But when you cry out to the king, man, it is like fix your eyes on what's true and who holds the victory. So, Let's read through Revelation 22, 6 through 21. This is our, the epilogue to the epilogue. And then we're going to drop back and walk through it together. So if you get nothing else from this sermon this morning, I want you to get this. Honestly, look, if you get nothing else from this entire series, then this is what I want you to get this morning and through this whole thing. Jesus is coming soon. That should be exciting. If it's not... I want to encourage you to ask why. So let's talk about what it means, Jesus is coming soon. No, we're not going to put some dates on the calendar and be like, he's coming at this point. That's weird. You can't do that. Um, so let's turn, turn to uh, Revelation 22. Uh, we're going to read through verse 6 through 21. Here we go. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the Holy Spirit still be, I'm sorry, and the holy still be holy. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. 
He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Woo! All right. So let's put on the spiritual gospel glasses and let's walk through this passage. So let's drop back to verse 6 where it said, And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So remember, this letter was originally addressed and distributed among seven churches in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. But then it was part of the Roman Empire in the first century. So the one that's writing is the Apostle John, right? He was the last... uh, of Christ's 12 disciples that was left alive on the earth. He was an old man, uh, but he personally knew these churches very well. And they knew him. They knew that he was Christ's beloved disciple. In many ways, he described himself as Christ's best friend. His validity would have been above reproach in the minds of these churches. So imagine being one of these churches. Your name is in this letter. He addresses it specifically to you. We saw that in chapters 2 and 3. Like imagine gathering together to hear this letter that's addressed to you. From the man who walked with Jesus. And, and he's saying that this message is directly from Jesus himself to you. Imagine being in one of those churches. This is actually the way that we should understand all of scripture, by the way. Right? Like it's not simply a letter from the author that wrote it down. Of course, it's a letter written down by John, but it's dictated from the lips of God himself. This is how we understand scripture. Some say, yeah, but you know, like, how can you trust that? How can you trust that the Bible is actually true? Like, isn't it written by humans, and didn't humanity screw it all up? Like, I went to college and had an unbelieving professor tell me and do the, like, telephone thing, and you guys know what I'm talking about, where they pass the message, and they're like, say, pickles, are in a jar, and then by the time it gets over here, it's like the Muppets are great. You know, it's like, and, and then they say like it gets passed down and it gets twisted and all that stuff. If it's completely contingent upon man, then yes, that's what happens. But if it's governed by the sovereignty of the Spirit of God, then guess what? That ain't gonna happen. And that's how we understand Scripture. And in fact, if you really did that exercise, it would be more like, One person tells the other person, and then they spend 20 years memorizing what they just said, and then they pass it on. I bet it's a little more clear. But anyways, you guys are like, what are you talking about with the telephone thing? Don't worry about it. Hopefully that was helpful to somebody that sat in that class. I did, and I was like, this is a joke. Um, So this is what I want you to understand. Like, Imagine gathering together. You're hearing this for the first time. You're trusting all of these things because you know the guy who's writing it to you and you've experienced it all, right? So I, I want you to understand that there are, there are countless reasons why we can trust that this is the infallible spirit-filled word of God. I don't have time to get into it all in this message, but if you're truly struggling with how the Bible is trustworthy and true, then I'd be more than happy to talk with you about it. Seriously, do not be intimidated. I'm not a mean person. All right. Um, but I, I want you to know, we don't just arbitrarily believe that the Bible is our ultimate authority as the word of God. Like the validity of the Bible has stood the test of time and a barrage of assault for thousands of years. And yet it's as trustworthy and true now as it ever has been. Like hopefully it's clear that we believe here that the Bible is our ultimate authority. We don't just say that it is and then never really talk about it, right? Like we don't just have like Bible church in our name and then we never talk about the Bible. Like this is our God-breathed infallible authority. Like when we open the scriptures, I pray that it blows your hair back with the breath of God. I wouldn't preach line by line through Revelation if I didn't believe that. Right? Like honestly, if you're truly interested in whether or not this word is the word of the creator of the universe, then I want to encourage you to read it. Read it. Like, but to read it for what it is, not as a textbook, but as the living word of God. Read it with others who know God and are filled with his spirit. Let them help you experience that breath of God in every verse. 
Like, if you're skeptical of its validity, then I dare you to join us. I dare you to join us for five consecutive Sundays and community groups. Just five. I dare you. Seriously. And then come talk to me. Like, if you're not willing to do that, then the truth is you're not really wanting this to be God's word. And you don't really want Jesus to be who he says he is. But trust me, in your heart of hearts, you want him to be who he is. Because you were created for him. So again, we've taken over a year to walk through this letter. But if you were a part of one of the original seven churches that this letter was written to, then you would have gathered together to hear this letter read aloud from beginning to end in one sitting. Seriously. That's how they first heard this. That's how it was actually written to be read, which means that all of these images, symbolic numbers, and visions would have inundated your heart, your mind, and your soul with all of these spiritual truths, and these prominent themes would have stuck out to you over and over and over again. It would have been totally obvious of what is being driven home. And so here in the epilogue, it's reiterated that it's all trustworthy and true, just like the rest of Scripture's Uh, that, that came from the utterance of the prophets of old, because the Lord is the God over it all. That's what it's saying in verse six. In verse seven, and behold, he says, behold, say behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So again, this was written in the first century. In case you hadn't noticed, It's the 21st century, right? So what does soon mean? Like, it's been almost 2,000 years. So earlier, the Apostle Paul, before Revelation was written, I'm sorry, the Apostle Peter wrote a letter to the early churches in 2 Peter 3, verse 1 through 4, says this, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. So he's writing to the churches. This is the Apostle Peter who also walked with Jesus. And he says, this is the second letter that I've written to you. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? This was like first century. This was actually before Revelation was written, okay? So Peter's like, I wrote to you in the first letter about how Jesus is coming soon, but now I'm writing to you again, and he's still not back yet, right? He still hasn't come. So skip down to verse 8 of 2 Peter 3. Verse 8 says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So that's the reason why the Lord has tarried and he has continued to, right? We talked about this before. Like, what's the reason we draw breath in this life? What's the reason he hasn't come back yet? Because he desires more children in his lap, saved by the blood of Christ. That's the reason. That's what informs our every waking moment as his people. If you love what God loves, that's what he loves, right? That's what he's about. So in this life, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, right? In other words, like you don't know when it's going to happen. And anybody that says they do is just wrong, right? So But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? You see the rationale there? Like, this is how it is. How then shall we live? How then shall we be? And it says to be in lives of holiness and godliness, to be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because, again, there's that heart. Like, you're desiring, you're looking forward to it because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That's intense language. Much like what we just walked through in Revelation. If, I, if you are interested in what all that means, go back and listen to the series we just preached. Verse 13. But according to his promise, 
we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So here's why I read all that scripture to you. The idea communicated in both 2 Peter and Revelation is the imminence of Christ's return. Say imminence. You see, there's an urgency and an anticipation that characterizes the life of believers because his return is imminent, not ominous for believers, imminent. It's ominous for unbelievers, but it's imminent for all. And yet there's also this sense in which we need to balance the already and yet not yet aspect of this. In fact, Daniel 2 verse 28 Uh, Old Testament prophet Daniel talks about these events that would happen in a distant future. And he called them the latter days or the last days. Right, 600 years before Christ even came to the earth, Daniel talks about the cosmic defeat of evil and the ushering in of the kingdom of heaven. But now this is talking about a distant future. Right, Then, 600 years before Christ, it says that all that's in the future, a distant future. In the latter days, in the last days, these things are going to take place. But Revelation is something, says something very different. Revelation, in the first century, says that the fulfillment of all that has already been inaugurated in their lifetime, then, in the first century, that it's taking place. That the full consummation is yet to come, right? The physical return of Christ is the full consummation of it all. But that even back then, in the first century, that the kingdom is in some ways already in their midst. That's the kind of language that's used. In fact, the New Testament often talks about the last days beginning with the resurrection and exaltation of Christ and lasting until his return. So when people come up to you and they say, man, I feel like we're in the last days, you should say, yeah, we are. And we have been for like 2,000 years. Right? In other words, we're now in the last days. What was in a distant future for Daniel in the Old Testament was the very near present for the first century church and has continued to unfold throughout the past 2,000 years and will continue until his return, which could be today. Or it could be in 20,000 years or more. That's real. That's biblical. One commentator even said that by the time this letter reached its destination with the first century churches, that they would have been able to say, because it was written like months ago, they would have been able to say by the time it got to them that these things are happening now. They would have viewed their current context as the last days, as they should have, right? So again, there's an imminence and an urgency attached to the coming king and his kingdom that continues today. Because if it was urgent then, it's definitely urgent now. Right? So we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Every generation has thought that they were the final generation. Precisely because this imminence is important. And the truth is that he could again return at any moment. Or he could come in 20 billion years from now. I don't know. We may be viewed as the early church at some point. Think about that. You ever thought about that? You don't know. I don't know. I do think he's coming in our generation. There you go. Cat's out of the bag. I do think it's imminent. So did Peter. So did John. And I'm not just saying that to be biblical. Like, I do think. I do see things, and many of you do as well. However, I don't want that to be ominous. I want that to be imminent. I want you to understand that as an imminence. Right? The imminence of his return should characterize every millisecond of those 20,000 years should the Lord tarry. To invest in that which the Lord loves as we await his arrival with vigilance. Like a bridal party who must stay alert as they await the late night arrival of the bridegroom at an unknown time. This is a parable that Jesus told for a reason. That's what's being communicated here. Imminence. Imminence. Even should the Lord tarry. Say, come, Lord Jesus. Jesus. 2,000 years from now, we should be saying, come, Lord Jesus. 20,000 years from now, we should say, come, Lord Jesus. And it says, blessed is the one who keeps the word, the words of the prophecy of this book. That's almost exactly how Revelation opened. If you remember, 
more than a year ago, Revelation 1.3 said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Blessed. You're blessed. What does it mean, then, to keep? What does it mean to keep these words? It's way more than just believing they're true. Way more. The word keep means to guard. Like to guard a treasure. To cherish these words and align your life with these words. To take them seriously and to set these words as the lens by which and through which you view the world around you. Because let me tell you something. That's the only way you're going to make any sense of all of this craziness. It's through this lens. Not the Fox News lens. Not the CNN lens. Right? Not some political party's lens. This lens. Not John Allen's opinions lens. Right? Lens of the scriptures. That's why this is our authority. This blessing is issued twice in Revelation. Twice. At the beginning and then again at the end. It's almost as though it's important. <laughs> right? So you're blessed. And yet nobody reads this thing. Like the truth is, guys, I gotta, I'm, out of I'm not going to be. I'm, we're, we're rolling. This is the last one. Look, the truth is that if you have made it through this series, you're more educated about Revelation than I was when I was, went through seminary and took a course on this. People don't talk about this stuff. They don't go there. Now you have a responsibility and the ability to respond in this world. That's why it's important. I've said it before. If your theology thinks this book of the Bible is irrelevant to your present circumstances, then you need to change your theology. Right? It's a book of the Bible that has told us twice that you're blessed. You're blessed for reading it, hearing it, and keeping it. <laughs> I got to be honest with you. I, I knew this series was going to take over a year when we started. But I thought that at least a part of me was going to be a little tired of Revelation by now. <laughs> right? And ready to like move on to a new series. Which some of you are like, I, I kind of am. But honestly, like, I'm ready for another year of it. Like, I've, this has been so encouraging to me personally. Like, I, I just want to start over next week and do it again in chapter one. Like, I, I, it's, it's, I've been so blessed by it, and there's so much depth, and we've only brushed the surface, but we get to dive into this, ladies and gentlemen, for eternity. And we're going to, we are, though, next week going to kick off a new series called Church People. Right? And it's actually designed as a launching pad out of what, all that we've been blessed with by this letter. And I, I'm actually pretty excited to take a look at how Jesus views church people. Not how the world views church people, but how Jesus views church people. You might be surprised to find that it's a little bit different. Right? Than the way the world does. So stay tuned because we're going to dive into what it looks like to practically keep the words of this book and to take them seriously and to guard them and to cherish them. Right? So verse 8, because we're still in chapter 22 of Revelation. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. I love the way Sam Storms, Dr. Sam Storms, drives this home um, when he commented on this passage and he said this, he said, hear the warning of the angel who speaks to all of us who are tempted to worship and love and cherish anything but God. You must not do that. You are tempted to worship sex. Don't do that. You're tempted to worship success. Don't do that. You, like John, are tempted to worship angels. Don't do that. You're tempted to worship money and possessions. Don't do that. You're tempted to worship same uh, or, or you're tempted to worship some athletic hero or Hollywood star. Don't do that. You're tempted to worship yourself. Don't do that. You're tempted to worship peace and comfort and the security of life in the Western world. Don't do that. You are tempted to worship the earth or the sky or the oceans. Don't do that. Worship God. Worship in the new heaven and the new earth will be endlessly fresh. It will never grow old or boring because God is infinitely appealing and infinitely fascinating. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. 
That was in the first century. Again, by the time it got to the churches, they would have been like, the time is here, right? Again, this is a reference back to the book of Daniel in, 12, in chapter 12, verse 4, when he was told in that prophecy 600 years before Christ came, he was told to seal up the words of the prophecy because it wasn't yet time. The time for him was still in the distant future. This is alluding back to that passage, but changing the wording. And here he's told not to seal up the words because the time was near. In the first century, Jesus used language like this for the kingdom all the time. He said that the kingdom was in your midst or the kingdom was at hand. Or even he would say the kingdom is upon you. Remember that? He says it all the time. John the Baptist came preaching that way. Right out of the gate. All right, back to verse 11. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Now, what is that? Like, what does that mean? Like, that seems like a strange thing to say, right? Like, what, what is, what's going on here? We know this is not an endorsement for wickedness. Like, the Bible's not like, if you're wicked, stay that way, right? Like, that's not what it's saying here. Um, in fact, this is actually a warning to everyone in light of Christ's imminent return. It's a call to repentance and a reminder that patterns of behavior are symptoms of a deeper issue and even a deeper identity. Think about this. It's saying that the time is coming where the true nature of the wicked and the true nature of the righteous will be exposed. Here's an example. Bear with me. Because I want to just give you an illustration here. I had a chance to spend a couple of months in Indonesia a long time ago. And there was a zoo in the city that I was living in. I learned very quickly that there's a big difference between American zoos and Indonesian zoos. Okay? See, in American zoos... They make allowance for idiots, like myself, right? It's true. Like, you can be a complete moron, and you're still going to be safe at an American zoo, for the most part. Like, you got to be exceptional sometimes to really, like, some people are like, hey, I'm going to jump in with the gorillas, right? Um, and, but even then, there's, like, a barrier, right? So, like, I learned pretty quickly, though, that an Indonesian zoo is very different, right? Like, <laughs> like at, at an American zoo, if you're allowed to do it, then it's probably safe, Right? Like, like, if you can touch the animals, then it's probably a safe animal to touch. Right? For the most part, it's foolproof. That's not how it is in Indonesia. Like, the principle in Indonesia was basically stop the animals from getting too close to the people, but there's nothing to stop morons like myself from getting too close to the animals. Okay? So, like, you could just kind of walk right up on the bars of the animals, and the animals are right behind it. So, I mean, like, to me, that was awesome. I'm like, I'm, I'm walking into the zoo thinking I'm going to get the experience, all these really cool exotic animals right up close, but I, I ended up walking out just happy to be alive. Because, I mean, you could, like, if this is the bars, the, the tiger's, like, right there. And the bars are, like, that far apart, you know? So I'm, I'm, I left, before I got out of there, I was nearly mauled by an angry tiger. I almost got my arm ripped off by an orangutan, and I was drenched from head to toe by the full spout of an Asian element, elephant. That's true. I'm serious. Like, this tiger's just laying up against the bars, and my 20-year-old brain thought, when, when, when else are you going to get the chance to touch a live tiger? Like, this is great, right? But A, you know, I didn't realize how fast tigers were, right? And B, I didn't realize that he could fit his whole paw through that bar, like through the space in that bar. He got his whole paw through there, and he barely missed me. I mean, it was one of those, like, whoa, and he's... You know, that's what happened. And I'm like, you would think that I would have learned from that, right? Like, <laughs> you know. But then I see this full-grown male orangutan, and he's reaching through the bars like this. Like, he wants some food, like real gentle, you know. He's like, hey, come on over here. Give me some food, you know. And so I go over, and I'm like, you know. I, it looked to me like he was reaching as far as he could. I don't know if you've seen how long an orangutan's arms are. But I learned that they're a lot longer than I thought. And so I walk over and I motion towards him like I'm going to hand him something, you know. And, and, and somehow his arm reached like a foot and a half further than I thought he could. And he grabs my sleeve. And it was like being sucked into an incinerator. Like I was like fighting with him. And he like doesn't even break a smile. He's just looking at me like, 
You know, he was so strong. And then he just kind of let me go and smirked like he'd been planning for some moron to walk by like me all day. (laughs) (laughs) So then as we were leaving, everybody, you know, the, the, the Indonesians that were with me were just like, this guy is a complete idiot. But the, there's this elephant that's drinking water, um, and he's minding his own business. He's, there's, no, there's nothing between him. He's got like a little rope on his leg, um, and he's just sitting there hanging out, looks really docile, and, um, you know, I, he was fine, and, and he seemed, you know, I, I walk over, and I'm like, I'm going to take an up-close picture of this elephant, but I'm going to keep my distance because I've kind of learned my lesson. Um, and he was fine until the flash went off in his face, and he just gave me a whole trunk full, right, just soaked me. And the Indonesians were behind me going, hati, hati, which means, now I know that means careful, careful. Um, my point is this. Like, I walked into that zoo as an imprudent idiot, right? And the zoo exposed my true nature. That's what happened. In an American zoo, the foolish can hide, <laughs> but not in an Indonesian zoo. The truth was exposed. This passage is saying that the time is coming Way back then it was saying this, where the true nature of everyone is going to be exposed. You're not going to be able to hide. There's going to be a decisive point at which you are going to align with the wicked or the righteous. It's a warning that patterns of behavior can be symptoms of your true nature because you are who you are becoming. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to learn from the fact that it's not a good idea to do dumb things. And so this passage is an imminent call to repentance. It's the reminder that you become like which you behold. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. This is what repentance means. Ezekiel 3, 27. Listen to this. Old Testament prophecy that says, He who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. For they are a rebellious house. Jesus often uses phrases like, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. Do you have an ear to hear it? Will you lean into those things? The point is that those who love evil have no desire for righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.13 speaks of evil people and imposters that will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The point here is that you shouldn't be surprised or spiteful when Christ is mocked. And righteousness is ridiculed. Don't be prideful that you're like, man, I'm so great. They're so dumb. Don't be prideful. Don't be vengeful. Be sacrificial. Let Jesus break your heart even for your enemies. Because you know that but for the grace of God, there go I. We have no grounds to be prideful or arrogant or look down our nose at anyone. Because but for the grace of God, you're grabbing that tiger by the tail. Justice is in fact coming, and it's coming with a heavier hand than any of us can imagine. Remember, they aren't rejecting you, they're rejecting him. Don't make it about you. If you're rejected or Christ is rejected or people do crazy, foolish, ungodly things, let it be about him and let that break your heart, not offend it. This is how we love as he does. You see, evil hearts have no desire for righteousness. This morning, if you have any thirst for redemption, my hope and prayer is that you would turn your eyes upon Jesus and that you would come and drink from the river of life. Verse 12, 12, we've got to speed it up. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So the recompense and repayment is both for the wicked and the righteous here. So let's not forget, though, that the entire reason Jesus went to the cross is because every single human in existence deserves eternal judgment because we've all sinned against an eternally just and good God. But he loved us so much that he took the penalty that we deserved to cover the debt that we owed to justice. This is the gospel. This is why we're a thankful and humble people. That God became a man and he lived the life that we couldn't live and he died the death that we deserved to die and he conquered death in the grave and paved the way to eternal life through the resurrection to an eternal life with the Father that starts now, not just one day when we die, but starts now, the moment we place our hope and faith in what Christ did for us at the cross. And he fills us with his spirit now. 
And we get to live this life out with changed and changing hearts that desire him and desire to say, come, Lord Jesus. This is what we mean when we say, there go I, but for the grace of God. But because of the grace of God in Christ, we also have the capacity to please him. Just as a son or daughter has the capacity to please their daddy. Now make no mistake, the recompense of the righteous is a real thing as well. It's called heavenly rewards. And I believe they come in the incomparable glory of daddy's delight in his children. That's the reward we're really after. Not a mansion or golden streets. What a weird thing. Those things are all designed to show you the love of God who's pleased with you and delights in you. And you might get a mansion. That's awesome too, right? Like that's, that's, but it's all designed as a, a conduit of his goodness and love. And it's something that we can even get glimpses of now in the spirit. Often the return of Jesus is shrouded in an ominous tone. Like people tend to talk about the return of Christ like it's a negative thing. Like Joe Dirt saying like, is this where you want to be when Jesus returns? Right? Like when Jesus, you guys seen Joe Dirt in the movie? No? Anybody? <laughs> Like, that was like his whole moral compass was like, is this where you want to be when Jesus comes back? Like that, but the idea there is such a negative thought. But when you truly behold him, when you really understand who he is and accept what he's done for you, his return won't be an ominous thing. It'll be the answer to your every prayer and the longing of your heart. And yeah, you might want to refrain from some things. But if you're a child of God, you're not refraining so that you get out of hell. You're refraining because you love him. Because he's good and he's worth it. This is who we are as his children. That's what I hope you get out of this series. A longing for his return. Come, Lord Jesus. A life leveraged that declares, come, Lord Jesus. See, the life that dreads Christ's return is a life that lives opposed to his rule and reign. Even now, it's a life that declares he's not good. So as his people, we say, come now. As much as is possible, come. Bring your kingdom, your will, your ways. Rule in our hearts, rule in our world, in our relationships now, on earth as it is in heaven, in every area. It's the surrendered life of discipleship that says, Lord Jesus, I trust you above all if there's any areas in your life that stand in opposition to the will and the ways of Jesus, those areas may be symptoms of a heart that is not fully surrendered to him as Lord. And guys, if he isn't your Lord, then he's not your Savior. Because you can't get one without the other. Like some want a Savior but not a King. But that's not really a Savior because, listen to this, Jesus didn't just come to save us from the big bad world. He didn't just come to save you from Satan. He came to save you from you. He came to deliver us from our own wicked desires and deceitful hearts. That's why trusting him as Lord is deeply intertwined with receiving him as Savior. You can't get one without the other. This is the gospel. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may, they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Remember, throughout Revelation, Christians are those who've washed their filthy, stained, sin-stained robes in the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, guys, when that tendency to sin and go your own way comes up, think of that stain and go, Jesus has washed me clean. You're not labeled by that sin. Now you're labeled by your Savior. That allows you to stand and walk with him. The result is that you come out pure white. Like it's an illustration of the gospel, right? Like the right, again here, it says that the, the right to the tree of life is a reference to eternal life with God that comes through the cross, which we've talked about before, that the cross of Christ is the tree of life, which we talked about you know, a couple weeks ago. You're welcome to go back and look at that. When, when you wash your robes in the blood of Christ, you take part in the cross of Christ, and then you may enter the city of God by the gates. And again, the gate, if you remember from last time, it is made of a single pearl, which again represents Jesus, who was the most valuable pearl, the pearl of great price, freely given Yet it cost the most valuable price ever paid 
the life of Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father but through the Son. There's so much here. Again, feel free, dive back into the September 19th sermon that was titled Daily Bread. Again, this is all talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. All of it. Verse 15. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So, so much for all dogs go to heaven, right? Like, there it is. Like, I was sure it was the cats that weren't going to get in, right? Like, it's a joke. It's, it's a joke. So, dogs, dogs are actually an Old Testament image for that which is unclean. It's symbolic. It's an image of something that eats its own vomit or wallows in its own filth. I love dogs. I do. But in the Old Testament, stray dogs were symbolic for the ungodly. And so that's the image that's being called upon here. It's not saying that there won't be dogs in heaven, okay? Breathe your sighs of relief for Fido. It's categorizing the ungodly nations with sorcerers who manipulate others with, with false narratives for their own agendas of power and control. That's who sorcerers are. They, 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 and they fall into the category with those who love and practice falsehood. They, 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 they fall in the category of the sexually immoral who, who pervert God's good design for their own selfish sensuality. And murderers who unjustly destroy God's image. God's image bearers, and idolaters who rebuff God's goodness for lesser saviors. And they all fall into this category of those who love and practice falsehood. Again, they push a false narrative or storyline about the world that we live in. Revelation is the unveiling of the truth in the midst of it all. And it says all of them will be locked out of this eternally heavenly city. Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. These are references to Old Testament prophecies. Okay, David was the great king of Israel in the Old Testament, and he was known as a man after God's own heart. And God promised that there would be no end to his throne, that it would be eternal, right? That his descendants, some, one of his descendants would sit on the throne of David for eternity. So when his last descendant was cut off from the throne in the Old Testament, God's people despaired until Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse was David's father. So the stump of Jesse was where the family tree was cut down, right? But a shoot or a limb comes out of that stump, right? This branch from his roots shoots out and it bears fruit. So it's a prophecy that's talking about Jesus coming from the line of David, through the line of David. Revelation 22 verse 16 is saying that Jesus is both the root or the source and He's the descendant of David. He's both the Lord of David and he, he's, Jesus is the one that all the prophecies were talking about. He's both David's Lord and his descendant. And, so, and, and also when it says the bright morning star, uh, the bright morning star was a common reference to a new day that's dawning, right? The end of the night and the dawning of a new day. That's what's being communicated here. Verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Remember, you are the bride of Christ, the church, the people of God. So the Holy Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. So the people who hear the Holy Spirit and the church saying, come, they also hear that and they say, come also, because now they are a part of the church. And so let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life with out price. And as we've said before, the water of life is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the water of life. And the bride is the church who drinks from the river of life, which, as we saw earlier in this chapter, flows forth from the cross or the tree of life. That's what's in the center of the new creation in the holy city. 
There's this big tree, and the tree is watered by the Holy Spirit, and from the tree flows this river of life. So it's fed by the Holy Spirit, and from it flows the Holy Spirit. And you know the, what the mediator is for all that? The cross! That's the tree. That's the fruit. Go back and listen to it. I don't have time to draw pictures and stuff. I did that last time. But look, there's just so much here that I want you to see this imagery and go back and read it and, and, and saturate yourselves in it. Because both the Spirit and the bride are beckoning to all to come and drink of this river of life that flows from the tree or the cross. This is who we are as the church. We declare to the world, come and drink deeply of the presence of God through this gospel of grace. This is who we are. But these waters are only for the thirsty. They're only for the thirsty. If you don't care, then you don't realize your need, and you'll never come and drink. This is why Jesus said he came for the sick, not the healthy. The truth is that we're all fallen, we're all broken, but it's only those who realize they need healing and redemption who actually come to the one who can offer it. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, uh, uh, the words of prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, or, or for, listen to me, this is like I'm doing it right now. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So hear me. The, the reason that it's so important to approach this letter as it's meant to be approached is because the, God knew and even makes it clear that people are going to twist this stuff. They have for their own agendas, to exploit it in order to manipulate other people, right? It doesn't mean that you shouldn't expound upon it or, or uh, exposit it or exegete it for people to understand. In fact, that is what it means to read it and cherish it and dive into it and, and saturate yourselves in it. What it's saying here is to take it seriously, to guard it, to keep it, to treasure it, to fix your eyes upon this letter of hope and truth and revelation that points to us to behold him and cry out, come Lord Jesus. Not to twist it into meaning what we want it to mean, but to submit to what the Lord has said, which is ultimately trustworthy and true and so good. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. So I want to close with the final verse of the final book of Revelation, which is so appropriate because it summarizes the entire Bible and God's heart for his people. Verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus Woo. be with all. Amen. Let's pray.